Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that the Steroid to CEO podcast has joined forces with Future Commerce, the number one podcast in e-commerce. We're combining forces to bring you the most insightful and relevant content in the world of tech and entrepreneurship. We're launching new content every week starting in July, and I don't want you to miss it. So subscribe to Steroid to CEO right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and let's take your business to the next level. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we're speaking to Chris Tolls, the founder and CEO of Sundaily. Originally called Sundots, Sundaily provides skincare gummies that protect and repair your skin. In this episode, Chris shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from studying furniture design at Rhode Island School of Design to getting fired from his job and meeting his co-founder to crowdfunding over $100,000 to launch his business and ultimately get acquired by the leading e-commerce platform for natural home and personal care products, Grove Collaborative. Tune in to hear all about this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Chris. Thank you so much for joining the Stairway to CEO podcast. Howdy. Thanks for making time. Absolutely. I'm really excited to hear your story and um, congratulations on your recent acquisition to Grove Collaborative. All right. So let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from? Let's talk about your childhood. Let's talk about you know how you were as a kid. Were you entrepreneurial? What kind of things were you into? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Summit, New Jersey. I was born in uh, New York City, but my folks did the uh, kind of classic looking for a little more space, uh, burbs run out to, to New Jersey when I was two years old. Very like stereotypical, nice suburbs, public schools, lawns, that sort of thing, good public schools. I, I wouldn't say I was entrepreneurial growing up. I remember my dad and I staffed a, a rogue snack bar at a Little League game where we just like went and bought sodas retail uh, at a supermarket and then sold them for more than we bought them. But that was the exception rather than the rule. Uh, honestly, I got into entrepreneurship because of how I saw business as a tool for problem solving and business leadership as a way to be in charge. Um, my career uh, in fits and starts, but largely has tried to focus on like making the world a better place for, for fear of sounding a little cheesy. And I had a non-traditional undergrad experience and then I went to art school uh, and then realized like, hey, wait, it's, it's sort of business folks that tend to be in control and so if I want to affect change, being in the, the business driver's seat is important. And that entrepreneurism is, is a great way to pursue that change. You said you liked art. What was the most challenging thing for you as a kid? You said you were from New Jersey. Where in New Jersey are you from? Northeastern New Jersey, kind of commuter town to New York City. Yeah, upper middle class, middle class suburbi, professional. 
Great. And did you go to college? Yeah, I went to Rhode Island School of Design, RISD undergrad. My degree is in furniture design, of course. Uh, I studied photography pretty heavily in high school and just really didn't like feel compelled to study a normal topic in college. I vividly remember talking to my parents about this. And my folks were like generally supportive of me and my goals, but no one in my direct family is involved in art or design. They're certainly like creative people in their own right, but like didn't self-identify significantly in that world. And so when I told them as the 17-year-old is wont to do, uh, by the way, I'm going to go to art school. They were like, meh, I don't know about that. Um, so we negotiated a compromise where I had to apply to at least one non-art school as a backup plan. Uh, and looking back, I think we both recall that we made that agreement and then I didn't actually do it. I was pretty singularly focused on uh, going to art school. My photography teacher, guy named Mr. Ross, was super influential and his son had gone to RISD. I basically visited RISD for his son's senior show in sculpture, had my mind blown. And deservedly or not, uh, growing up, the, the reputation was, if you get into RISD, you go to RISD. So uh, when I got in, uh, I went. That's great. And so what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you always want to do something in the arts? Is that kind of why, like, what was your no. ultimate dream job? I didn't know. And I still don't really know, honestly. Like, I knew I wanted to make a difference. Um, I didn't have a good way of describing what that was. I still don't. I knew I was creative. I don't think I had very good vocabulary or self-awareness to know what that really meant in practice. And so my decision-making process there was to sort of just like follow the things that I felt like I cared about. I had had a real powerful experience learning photography and expressing myself with photography. Um, and so that pointed towards art and design. I actually knew that I didn't want to study photography in college because I felt like I already had the skills I needed to express myself with photography. And so I was particularly keen to study something different in a different discipline. Uh, and at the end of the day, I knew that art and design just like spoke to my heart and that I had higher confidence in a fulfilling and meaningful life if I followed that than if I followed like, oh, I'm good at math. You know, I guess I should go study something practical. Um, and that's been pretty true for my, my life so far is like, follow the energy, follow the spirit, um, have never really had a master plan, still don't, don't know what I'm going to be doing with my life, you know, a year or five down the road. But art school was the first decision that I made really trying to be spirit led like that. Uh, and it turned out great. So there's a, a pretty strong, like reinforcing cycle there that I'm still trying to pay attention to. Nice. And so when you were in art school, did you have any internships or what were, what was your first job out of school? Uh, my first job out of school was a, a sort of non-job. Uh, I got a Thomas J. Watson fellowship. Uh, Thomas J. Watson was one of the founders, maybe the founder of IBM. And he had a, a passion for global citizenship. Um, IBM, obviously very successful, made him very wealthy. And so he has endowed a whole bunch of different like international programs around the world, actually. Uh, there's a Watson um, program at Brown University that focuses on international development, international studies. The fellowship was very much about personal discovery and sort of like realizing your role and your identity in the global community. 
So it had some interesting terms where you, it was for a year of international travel. You could not come back to the U.S. or the country of your birth for the entire year. So they very much like wanted to get you out of your comfort zone. You applied with a project of your own design, which could be like anything you were interested in. And then their philosophy was they had a, a rigorous selection process. And then once they chose you as a fellow, it was basically like check in quarterly and like let us know if you have any problems. So there was a remarkable amount of freedom. The program I designed was around the design appropriateness of international humanitarian shelter. Um, at the time, I had gotten really into how design is a problem-solving methodology rather than like making things look pretty and was particularly compelled by the power of, of design and human-centeredness to be influential in scenarios of the most acute human need, which would certainly include shelter, humanitarian shelter, disaster relief. So I designed a year of travel where I would basically go work with different humanitarian organizations uh, through a design lens on shelter. Um, I had also gotten married super young, so my wife was coming with me. And that was our, our first year after RISD. Um, we were in Switzerland, Norway, Liberia, and Honduras. Uh, Switzerland and Norway were like the headquarters side of the, the project. And then Liberia in West Africa and Honduras in Central America were sort of our field work. So it was, you know, one part like global citizenship, you know, experiential discovery. One part, hey, maybe this is a career or a sector I care about. One part, like, wow, we're off on our own as a, as a married couple and as a family trying to find our own way. Um, and uh, it was funded by the Watson Foundation. Uh, so kind of a job in that they paid me, uh, not so much a job, and then it was a pretty explicit, like, one-year weirdo international adventure. <laughs> That's awesome, though. That's an incredible experience to be able to it travel. Was. Yeah, it was, it was pretty transformative. Uh, my wife and I had both done a limited amount of international travel prior, um, primarily Central America. And that's a big part of what drew me to the program is just sensing like, man, when you spend time in places that are different from where you grew up and with people who are different with, you know, from those whom you grew up with, you just learn and grow and you figure stuff out. And uh, super humbling, very lonely experience. Um, even, even being with my spouse, like I, I have such respect for people who do the Watson uh, program solo, uh, that combo of like, get outside your comfort zone, discover a world that's unlike your own, uh, was super rewarding in a way I hoped it would be. And has continued to be since, um, especially because it really formed my own entrepreneurial drive and which I'm not sure I would have described it quite that way at the time, uh, in business because a, a key insight from that year was, man, there's a lot of really well-intentioned people doing their best with humanitarian relief, but what like a broken system is it? Super low accountability, like white people show up for six months, white people disappear, um, very limited ability to say with confidence that the work was impactful. Uh, a lot of measuring of like, yes, we threw the stuff off the back of the truck rather than measuring of things a, a little more closely tied to the actual in incomes. Uh, and again, not because people are like nefarious or, or scam. I mean, there's, there's fraud everywhere in the world, but overwhelmingly like good people doing their best and just like a really, really hard system where I felt like I could bang my head against the wall for 20 years to really like affect change categorically. Um, 
but man, that, that sounded just like really exhausting. Um, and so that drove me significantly towards the then a little more novel uh, premise of like social enterprise, social business. I started to discover, wow, there are for-profit approaches to many of these same questions of human need. Uh, and the beautiful thing about a for-profit business is that sooner or later, like you gotta, you gotta demonstrate a bottom line. Uh, and that doesn't mean that for-profit businesses are inherently more impactful or, or certainly not better for the world, but there was better alignment between what I wanted to see, which is like rigor and accountability around what are you actually doing baked in, in a way I found compelling. At the time, there was also some interesting behavioral research coming out around how people treat services differently if you charge for them rather than if you give them away. Um, and it, it varies case by case, but in a lot of the examples, even if you charge people a nominal amount of money, they have actual ownership about a thing, and so they actually use it rather than anybody will take you know, a, free, a free thing. Um, and so the actual impact of a, a given intervention, most famously like uh, malaria bed nets, was actually stronger even if you charged like very poor people uh, an appropriate amount because it brought them into the equation. Uh, and again, you know, business is, has its own like pretty miserable, horrible impacts on the world that I won't pretend uh, aren't there. But it was a really key moment for me seeing that there's a system here that fits better with my personality, my desire for accountability, and one in which like I could really be a part of change that, that I could really push forward. Yeah, that's an excellent takeaway as well. And so what did that lead you to after you completed your fellowship? How long was the fellowship? And then what did you do next? The fellowship was just a year. Uh, it always is. Um, and that was long enough to like go into it, like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, have a lot of my idealism like crushed by the reality of like the cold, <laughs> hard world. And then uh, emerge with this nugget of hope that hey maybe there's a maybe there's a way to still be concerned with some of these same questions, uh, but in a way that's more accountable. Uh, and so I finished that year really looking for that last thing. Like okay, I don't think I'm a good fit for humanitarian relief as a business model. Again, not language I had at the time, but in retrospect, like that's exactly uh, what the mismatch was. Like how could I get involved with some of these social enterprise efforts? Um, that, that might have a, a better approach. Um, my wife uh, was a teacher at the time. Um, she found a teaching gig in the Boston area. I mentioned we grew up in New Jersey. We grew up together. Um, so both from New Jersey, family still in the area. I went to college in Rhode Island, so Boston's not that far away. So we basically decided, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll pick Boston uh, as a fine place to start exploring. Uh, I was aware of Harvard and MIT, um, didn't really know much about the ecosystem, but figured, you know, there, there's got to be opportunity there. And so once we landed in Boston, uh, I basically just set myself to like figuring out how best to get involved at this intersection of sort of like design, business and, and impact. This was also summer 2009, which is like not a great moment to be trying to get a job, right. especially <laughs> as a as a uh, less essential, you know, quote unquote, creative. Um, so I ended up working primarily at Whole Foods in the coffee and cheese department, uh, totally struck out getting a normal job at a design firm, uh, cobbled together a bunch of like weird freelancey things between Whole Foods, worked at Harvard Graduate School of Design and their 3D printing lab um, as a way to, to basically pay rent in order to have time to make better connections at MIT. 
uh, MIT had a program, has a program called D-Lab that's all about appropriate technology in emerging markets, kind of better technology solutions for the developing world. And uh, that, you know, at the time was like very, very much my people. So I got involved there as a volunteer to help them run uh, a conference they did every year called IDDS, the International Development Design Summit. And that was about like principles of design thinking applied to international development challenges. Brought in like 50% of the participants from emerging markets. Super cool, like multi-week experience that was being held in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, And at the same time, connected with a very early stage MIT startup called One Earth Designs that was doing a solar cooker. Uh, So big dish, curved mirror on the inside surface. And it focuses sunlight on a focal point, like a magnifying glass, but you know, reflection instead of refraction. There's a pot held at that focal point. And basically, you take a large amount of sunlight and you condense it into a small amount of space and things get hot very quickly. Uh, they were focused on emerging markets. They were a for-profit business with some interesting non-profity hybridy approaches. Um, you know, had prototypes, had gotten some press with the MIT 100K, which is an entrepreneurship competition. I distinctly remember sneaking into the tent of the like finalists where they had this like VIP reception um, and meeting them. The guy who led design for them at the time had gone to RISD undergrad. And I was basically like, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, can I, can I help you? Um, and they were like, no, <laughs> we, we don't need any help. <laughs> but then uh, two weeks later, I got an email and they were basically like, JK, we want some help. <laughs> so That's awesome. Yeah, it's like one of these classic, like, who knows what kind of connections you're making and when. Uh, they were like, actually, we, we do want some help. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. So what happened when they reached out? You were probably like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're actually reaching out. <laughs> I was really like, hell yeah, 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 totally. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. Looking back, like th- what they really wanted was they wanted me to write grants to get them money, which I could then use to pay myself. And so the initial premise was basically like fund your own job, uh, which, you know, as an entrepreneur and as like a, a scrappy entrepreneur, like I get like no, no shame, respect. Uh, but they're basically like, if, if you can find money for your own employment, like we'd love to have you. Um, of course you the, would. <laughs> of course you would, right? <laughs> like basically it's like, you know, being a sales headhunter, but for your own salary. Right. Uh, and that's why that's a thing. Like that's a, that's a great way to keep cash, you know, burn, burn low. Uh, right. And so I was like, of course, whatever. I, like I can write grants. I know nothing about writing grants. I know nothing about their business. So I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And in one of, you know, just the weird twists of the universe, um, the very, and they were like, oh, and in parallel, you know, spend 50% of your time actually doing product design with us. So write these <laughs> grants, you know, and in parallel also do design work. And I was like, all right, sure, whatever. Um, the first week, I'm working with them. 
they're like, all right, the very first thing we need is we need a new prototype built of the product because we're finalists in this green business plan competition in Europe. And I was like, oh, perfect. Like building a prototype. I went to RISD, like I can make stuff, you know, I, I can work with my hands at craft. I, that's my, that's my jam. And what a great way to learn about the product because I'll actually build one. So we build the prototype and I'm like, this thing is kind of janky. I don't know if this thing like actually works. Um, but you know, whatever they're, they, they're fancy. I'm not, I'll, I'll just make the thing. So I make the prototype. We send it to Europe with the CEO, a guy named Scott Frank. And we win the first prize in the competition. No way. Second week in the company, 500,000 euros grant, free money, free money for this organization. Wow. And so then I was basically like, well, I, I don't think you need me to write grants, do you? And they're like, no, like, let's just work on the product. So total like random timing, cool happenstance uh, that made that role into a full-time product role. And that's what they needed. So wait, was that like a 10x situation there? Like you basically were trying to only kind of get enough grants for your own salary and then end up getting them like (laughs) $500,000. Right. And of course, you know, I I just built the thing. Like, you know, they, they, most of that is, is on them rather than me, but like, yeah, I built a damn prototype that was on the stage And, (laughs) and it looked amazing on the stage. And the thing that we laugh about in retrospect is like that thing did not work. Like that guy got on that stage and bless him, like fake it till you make it. Scott Frank got on the stage pitched in the finals for a half a million euro and they never once said fry me an egg (laughs) you know like they never once said like put it outside because that thing did not work and i know because i made it and like i spent the next two years trying to make the product actually work but you know like that's the nature of early stage maybe they knew what they were getting into the whole point of the program was like encouraging uh disruptive technologies uh but yeah it was a a remarkable like return on first week effort. That's that incredible. That gave the company enough money to like actually go to market. And so that's then, that was my job is we have a very cool looking prototype. It would be nice to have a functional product. Um, right. And so I hired and led um, a designer uh, in Cambridge initially. Our design director left to do a Fulbright. The whole company relocated to Hong Kong because we were uh, launching in China and manufacturing in China. So at some point, we were basically like, what are we doing in Boston? Um, so we all went to Hong Kong. I moved there with my wife, hired and led our, our design and engineering team there, um, and basically spent, yeah, the next two years like trying to make the, the thing actually work. Awesome. So you win this huge challenge. You win that company over $500,000 in a grant. You're pretty much set for that whole situation. What happened next? Basically made the product work and realized that the product's not enough. So the the beauty of what we were doing was that we were all super sold out for the mission and we were all product people. So the founders had spent time in Western China, Qinghai province, sort of the, the Utah of China, if you will. Heavy Tibetan and other non-Han ethnic minority population, super duper energy scarcity. Uh, They cook primarily with animal dung, which is both terrible in terms of um, uh, respiratory disease and gender parity because it was pretty exclusively women who would collect dung. So they basically said, hey, 
like there's all this sunlight hitting the earth. We've got to be able to do something with it. That's not very expensive, fancy photovoltaics. That was the inspiration for the product. The thing we were best at was that we were all really sold out that uh, a solar collector type product could be impactful, which means that the product itself was awesome. And it took us a year and a half, but like, it's a really cool thing. Like we could light stuff on fire instantaneously under the right conditions. Um, it was robust. It was cool looking. Like we got a lot of great press around it. The problem is that there's this thing around a product called a business model, which tends to be pretty important. And, you know, again, you don't know what you don't know. We were all young. Nobody had done this before. Like our leadership was awesome, except they were young and hadn't done it before. So it was very much the blind leading the blind. Also, um, definitely at the time, and I, I would argue still so, within the social benefit, social impact, and a social business movement, people tend to get so enthused about the good you're trying to do in the world that I think there's a lot of soft soap around the actual strength of your underlying business premise. Uh, you basically say, I'm going to help people, especially, you know, I'm going to help poor people. And man, like, do, do people get excited? Rightly so. Like, I love that too. But the scrutiny with which your actual business premise gets examined can be pretty lax. And so looking back, I'm sort of like, man, like, where were the adults in the room? Like, how did we have all of these fancy people ostensibly as advisors basically point out to us, you guys got a product, like you don't have a business. So as this started to reveal itself, like, hey, I could crush the object, like I could make this, this product, the actual thing itself remarkable, but have no impact. That was my awakening that if I, if I care about actually making a difference, rather than just a cool award, great press, like neat, uh, neat novel product. If I really cared about making a difference in people's lives, I needed to be as comfortable designing the business model as the object itself. Right. And I didn't go to like art school because I'm bad at math and science. Like I, I did great at school. I, I can handle those other topics. I knew if I really wanted to commit myself to other disciplines I had the potential to go do that. And so one of the designs for me real like revealed to me that the skill I had was necessary but insufficient. And unless I wanted to repeat one earth designs again in my career, which I didn't. Like I wanted to go all the way. I didn't want just a cool TEDx talk. I wanted to really help people. I needed to have the same facility with pricing, channel, market, customer, as I did with, you know, PET and powder-coated steel and cold rolling. And that's really when the premise of business school uh, started to be really appealing to me. Business school itself, like MBA programs, are a whole worthy separate debate. But for me, an MBA program was a great choice because I needed to just like dive in for a limited amount of time get the like basics, get the vocabulary, and also get the signaling. I had the design cred from RISD, and I needed somebody to look at me and not say like, what's a designer 
doing as a CEO or what's a designer doing in, in the boardroom? Like our app looks pretty already. And so MBA was the, the best choice for me. So while I was at One Earth Designs, applied the MBA programs, uh, only wanted to, to come back to Boston. Um, so yeah, primarily uh, focused on MIT and Harvard, not even an interview, like real disappointment. Uh, I, I do standardized testing really well, crushed the GMAT, super let down um, to not get uh, admitted there. Uh, and so as a last, uh, last minute addition applied to BU, that was sort of a backup school that I, I didn't think I would need. And thankfully, those same GMAT scores uh, that I thought would get me into Harvard make it look like I'm going to get into Harvard. <laughs> so I think BU uh, thought they had to fight for me a little more. So they were generous with scholarship, which also makes the decision easier. Uh, and so left Hong Kong to come back to Boston and, and get my MBA. And that's really where I feel like my, my career in terms of how I think about it today really started. Because what I wanted to be able to do was be the bridge between quote-unquote creative disciplines and quote-unquote business disciplines. Uh, and the MBA set me up to do that really remarkably well uh, in a way that I'm, I'm super thankful for. That's awesome. So you went to BU, Boston University, and when um, did you have internships while you were there or did you have, what was your first job after school? Yeah, I did have a summer internship. So full-time MBA programs are usually two years, so you get one mm -hmm. summer. Um, my summer was with Steelcase, the furniture company, and IDEO, the design firm in San Francisco. Um, Steelcase was a minority owner of IDEO for many years, so they have a very close relationship. And Steelcase was piloting a new business concept in San Francisco uh, that they had already piloted in Chicago pretty successfully. So it was basically one young entrepreneurial dude from Steelcase and me. And they were like, here, this, this kind of worked in Chicago, like make it work in, in San Francisco. And it was a premium co-working concept. Um, so got to hang, you know, in the IDEO community. Um, I had long sort of like admired and revered that as the kind of creative community and, and culture that I wanted to be a part of. Got some chops as to how large corporations think about innovation um, and importantly, set me up for success to be able to get a full-time role after my MBA with a firm called InnoSight uh, in Boston, uh, which is sort of like IDEO type problems in that it's all new market, new product, growth, top line, but McKinsey type process. So our clients were all large corporations looking to pursue some sort of innovation agenda. Uh, whether it's uh, a geography that they haven't expanded into, a technology trend that they're worried they're going to miss out on, like Steelcase, a new business premise that they're sort of incubating internally. InnoSight is management consulting for innovation and growth. And so coming out of business school, my, my main thought was, I don't want to do something entrepreneurial because I don't have the stomach for it. Um, at the time, like I felt like I, I just don't know what I'm doing enough. I'm scared to go do it myself. Man, that was really hard before business school. Wouldn't it be great to have a boss <laughs> who could uh, tell me how to do my job better? And so it was primarily uh, thinking about something like an IDEO versus an InnoSight. Um, IDEO recruits late in the year. Um, InnoSight recruits early because InnoSight is competing with the McKinsey's, you know, Bain, BCG's of the world. So never even really got to like a face-to-face -face decision, got an offer from InnoSight, 
Inosite represented my growing edge still, like that business, like it was business first and sort of creativity second. Inosite was co-founded by Clay Christensen. He was a Harvard professor, died earlier this year. I wrote a book called Innovator's Dilemma. So there was a lot of like strong uh, personality and culture of like visibility within the big company corporate world that appealed to me. And it, I figured I would rather be the design guy at a business firm, you know, than, than the business guy at a design firm, essentially. So how did you go from that to building Sundaily? Yeah, how did I? <laughs> <laughs> at the time, still wasn't convinced that I had it in me to start my own thing. So I had gotten a job at a, a really hot biotech startup here in Boston called Emulate. It was doing a technology called Organs on a Chip. Um, totally flamed out, fired in week seven by the CEO, hired by the CEO, fired by the CEO very quickly. Uh, and that's really where Sundeli came from. Because I'll vividly remember, I got fired on June 9th because it was our anniversary. And my wife, to her credit, was like, I don't think what you need right now is like a romantic dinner with me. <laughs> so she uh, called some friends, uh, had some friends come over. And had a campfire in the backyard for me to basically like feel blindsided and confused and, and sad. And uh, at that campfire, my buddy, who is an entrepreneur himself and had been for some time, he was like, maybe you're just not made to work for other people. Like, you seem like you've had a really hard time having a boss for your entire career. <laughs> Their, your friends are like, you seem a little unemployable. Uh, have you yeah. thought about not working yeah. for someone else? Yeah. Like, why, why, why do you always have to be such a pain <laughs> for right. the CEO? <laughs> um, and I was like, that's a good question, man. <laughs> and to his credit, he was like, why don't you press into that? And so particularly, I focused on science commercialization from academic labs. When researchers create things in a lab, the university typically owns the intellectual property. The university is then able to license it to a company to commercialize it, exploit it into a company or a product or a service. And I met all these scientists who had like amazing stuff literally sitting on the shelf. And because they're world-class research scientists, they couldn't start a company to save their life. And so they're like, I got this stuff. <laughs> I've been publishing papers my whole career. Uh, you know, nobody's paper saves a life. How do I get my stuff to actually make a difference? And that was my whole pitch to academic researchers of, of Boston during that time was it's products and services that make a difference. The way your insight, paper, data, evidence, IP is going to make a difference is by moving it from the like interesting piece of IP stage to in-market customers, products, money, revenue, channel, brand, all of those things that I'd working to grow as my skill set. And so I spent what turned out to be 18 months. After a year, we sort of reevaluated as a family and we were like, yeah, this is pretty fun. Like, it's kind of nice to not have a boss. And ironically, I made more money that year freelance consulting than I had any year prior in my life. So financially, it was like, yeah, let's keep going. Um, That's funny. Because you would think it's like a risk, you know? Like most people would look at that and say, okay, he went, he like got fired, had a campfire with his buddies. They were like, oh, just forget about getting a job elsewhere. Your right. wife and your three month old, you're all like, oh yeah, just don't worry about getting a job. Try that freelance thing. And you ended up making more money than you could have totally. working for someone else. Totally. And like to be clear, like I'm a white guy with a graduate degree living in Boston. Like, right. 
I got a lot on my side. You know, I, right. I had strong savings at the time. So I knew even if I could find no consulting work, I wasn't going to miss my, my rent uh, in, in the, the few months phase. So it, it's always important for me to remember like, yeah, that went well, but like, I probably literally have as much privilege as you could possibly have in the entire right. world right now. Right. Uh, and nonetheless, what you just described, like, yeah, it was exactly what happened. Um, and that's why that year turned into 18 months. And the 18 months was basically speed dating academic researchers. And these you know, the- academic researchers were from Boston University, basically like their science lab. So you kind of went back to your, you know, where you got your MBA and kind of went to the science realm to find these people. Is that correct? Yes and no. Um, yes, except not just be you. Um, because it turns out that the culture of a university's licensing department, uh, which is often called tech transfer, is hugely important to the search process of finding a company or, or a piece of IP. So BU has remarkable research capacity and produces amazing IP, but MIT is most famous for its sort of, you know, uh, uh, sponsoring and promoting of early stage entrepreneurial efforts. And especially, I mean, I barely have a clue right now. At the time, I was literally like, I'm a guy trying to start a company. And they're like, okay, tell me about your prior fundraising and, and CEO expertise. And I'm like, right. I don't have any of that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but give me your IP. And they're like, yeah, I think we're just going to sit on it. Uh, and so BU culturally was way more cautious. They were looking for, you know, a Medtronic or a Raytheon or a Biogen. Like they were looking for big corporate um, licensees. Um, and this gets into the business model of licensing, which is a whole other separate conversation. But I was a very risky licensee. And so I had a lot more enthusiasm, enthusiasm from MIT and Harvard. Uh, Harvard because it's trying to catch up to MIT. And MIT because it's always had that culture of, of early stage company formation in finding something. But besides that, yeah, did exactly what you just described. Make friends, you know, offer help um, and see what's there. Got pretty close with one technology from the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, hospitals are the same way. Um, they, they produce intellectual property and then they, they have the opportunity to, to find a home for it. That uh, was an at-home male fertility diagnostic. It was semen analysis at home, which is currently a miserable uh, experience clinically. Um, couldn't come to terms with the inventor. Otherwise, like could have been an amazing business. Uh, and that was sort of the process is like, find a thing that's promising do a bunch of work to validate the business, figure out whether it's something I actually care about, and then try and build trust with the researcher and in the institution that they should actually give it to me. And the, the, the successful piece of that process is not actually that we got IP from the university, but that I met my co-founder through that process. So we were working with a, a guy at Brigham and Women's, amazing dude named Jeff Karp, who is atypically commercially oriented in that he knows like products and services or would actually help people. So while most PIs are like, what's a business? What's a company? He proactively goes out, pulls together small teams to work on his IP. And he had a technology that had a consumer health angle. So he was like, Hey, Chris, like I met you. You say, this is what you want to do. I'll pull you in as the business guy. I'll pull this woman, Dr. Amelia Javorsky as the science gal. Why don't you take a look at this thing for me? And so she and I worked together on this for probably six months, very part-time, didn't end up being a compelling business in its own right. 
Uh, but through Jeff, met Amelia. And when she and I decided, yeah, like this is cool, but not cool enough to deserve to be its own company right now, or at least not one that we're going to offer to really like go commit to full time. Amelia, I, I have a super vivid memory of this exact conversation. We're in this teeny little conference room. She's like, by the way, like I got my own ideas. And the one I'm most excited about is ingestible sun protection. Uh, and that was our first product. So uh, that moment, she was like, why don't we skip all the IP licensing process from university? This is public data. It's an ingredient that you can buy off the shelf. So downside is from a strategy perspective, it's, it, the company is not an intellectual property company. You know, when you license IP from MIT, the whole point is that that IP is really the enabler, right? Nobody else can make that medical device. Nobody else can write that piece of software. Nobody else has that molecule that's going to cure cancer or whatever. In our case, um, anybody can buy the active ingredients in our products. So it was, a, it was a, a pretty key moment of us like evaluating, is this a business that we think could thrive? Um, and the way that we compete would be totally different from the way I thought it would be. But she raised that question. I was like, that sounds like BS. Uh, how can you possibly like eat sun protection? And she's like, cool, here's the literature. Take a look for yourself. And it's not BS. It's like totally, completely, legitimately effective and real. And I was like, this should be a gummy because then people will actually take it. And then when I dug into the literature, which I can read for myself, like, I don't have a PhD, but like I can read the original literature. It was totally legitimate. And, and here's how we know. So sun protection is a very well characterized thing in your body. Like we know a lot about what it looks like, how it happens. There's still, of course, a ton we don't know, like anything, but pretty decently well understood um, harm in your body. And part of the reason why we've had to characterize it so well is because we have to test products against it. So we have sunscreen, right? And sunscreen says it does X, Y, Z, which means for a long time now, industry has had to figure out how to measure sunscreen effectiveness. We're all familiar with SPF. Then uh, the literature basically does the same thing. So you take a person or a group of people, put them in a lab. You have an ultraviolet lamp that's controllable. So you know, you know how much radiation you're exposing someone to. You zap them in a part of the body that typically doesn't get a lot of light, like your back or your buttocks. Zap them with a fixed amount of UV radiation, give them polypodium, zap them again, compare to the two sites, uh, which is the, the same way you approach sunscreen. Just with sunscreen, it's a topical application, right, rather than something oral. And there's fewer sunburn cells, is the short answer. Um, so there's a number of different ways of measuring sun protection uh, and sun damage. Uh, the best non-dermatologist kind of uh, measurement is literally number of new sunburn cells. So that's on a microscope, you take a skin biopsy, you know, very thin layer of cells spread on a, on a slide. And then a human being literally looks and counts, hey, in a given amount of space, like how many sunburn cells are there? Because sunburn cells look different from regular cells. That's one of about six or seven different biomarkers of sun damage. And what's remarkable is that like when you give people polypodium leucotomus extract, the active ingredient in our first product, um, those numbers look better. And the way that works is primarily by way of antioxidant density. So the initial kind of damage that happens when your skin is exposed to the sun is called oxidative stress. Basically, UV radiation comes in, uh, interacts with your cells. Your cells uh, create what are called free radicals. 
that free radical is banging around, causing damage. We've, we've heard of free radicals and you know, antioxidant um, health in lots of different foods, mm-hmm. but similar initial mechanism in your skin. That free radical banging around is what then causes inflammation like redness, eventually can cause DNA damage that leads to more substantial health issues down the road like skin cancer or other uh, uncontrolled growth. Because polypodium leucotomos is super antioxidant dense, has a complementary electrical charge to that free radical, and so basically slurps it up before it can cause real damage. It says, hey, you're attracted to me, I'm attracted to you, I'm going to take this free radical and put you back into an electrochemically satisfied state. Which raises the question, like, why does polypodium do this? And like, blueberries don't, (laughs) right? Like, there's there's tons of antioxidant-dense food out there. And the cool short answer is like, we don't know. We don't even know how it gets to our skin. We don't know why polypodium. There's a set of seven or eight actual polyphenols, the like subcomponents of the ingredient that we suspect are doing the work. But because science tends to either look at like, does something work really well or how does it work? And oftentimes because the ingredient is pretty well characterized as to does it work, it makes it less attractive from a career perspective to research how does it work. And so there is admittedly like very limited understanding of of how it actually gets there. But because we have this very robust approach to evaluating does it work from sunscreen, there's by now about 25, 30 years, 19 peer-reviewed published human clinical trials saying, yeah, this stuff actually works. And that was really the aha is like, holy shit, you can eat sunscreen. Uh, And, you know, caveats abound. It's not as effective as sunscreen. It's not a replacement. It's not enough to be its own thing. Uh, But, like, man, that's a game changer. And that was Sunday. So is this something you would use? So I understand this is more of, like, kind of post-sunburn, I guess, right? Or is this also prevention? Yep, also prevention. So when you get sunburned, it takes a little while for the red to show up, right? Right. There's a period of time uh, where your your body is responding to the actual moment of exposure and expressing it as damage. Anytime you can have an antioxidant effect during that process is going to be helpful. You know, I mean, ounce of prevention, pound of cure, like will always hold. So, you know, that's why like taking it before or, you know, every day in the morning is really what we focus on. And also to be clear, there's not enough controlled research to really establish relative efficacy, you know, like timing of polypodium. But biochemically, it helps at any point. And if you can do it beforehand, like, wouldn't that be the best? Right. That's awesome. So you met your co-founder through Jeff. Which, which institution was this, by the way? Brigham and Women's. All right. Brigham and Women's Hospital. Yeah, big uh, research hospital in Boston. Awesome. And so you meet your co-founder, you align, you're like, this is it. This is the kind of product we want to sell. Let's join forces and do this. Can we walk through a few, like kind of how you got started in building the company? Yeah. So that was October. Uh, we what were year? starting a, uh, 2017. Cool. Um, and, and we were starting a sun protection company. <laughs> so like seasonality matters. So we basically sat there and it was, it was really like November when we like really said like, we're going to go for this. So we're sitting there in November and we're like, we got to get product in people's hands in June, like, like have to. Um, and so if it's got to be in, in, in hands of people's, if it's got to be in people's hands in June, you do a work back calendar and you're like, I have three months to figure this out. 
So we basically decided we've got to launch a crowdfunding campaign first week of March in order to have product in hand. And, you know, you go through all the different scenarios. Would it be better to do the crowdfunding campaign in June because then sun protection is top of mind? Sure. But then you're not going to deliver people product until September. And like, who launches a sun protection brand in September? There's never, you know, the beauty of entrepreneurism is like, the answer is never obvious. And there's no answer that's ever like the best, clearly. So it's a judgment call. And we basically decided, all right, like first week of March, we got three months to figure out product, brand, pricing, marketing, channel, website, e-commerce, subscriptions, suppliers, all of that stuff. Um, and that turned out to be an awesome decision because between... So there's two main kinds of risk in any entrepreneurial effort. There's technology risk. Like, can you make the thing exist? Right? Like, does it violate the laws of physics? Can it exist? Is it effective? And then there's commercial risk. Can you sell it? We were confident that there was pretty modest technology risk. Uh, there actually was a lot more than we realized because making gummies out of like novel ingredients that taste like shit is actually really hard. But thankfully, we just assumed it would be no big deal. So we focused <laughs> exclusively on commercial risk. This is a weird product that nobody's ever heard of. It sounds like it's nonsense. How are we going to build enough trust that people are actually going to put this thing in their mouth? Because that's, that's like a serious moment as a consumer. Someone's handing you a thing saying it's going to blah, 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 and you put it in your body requires a lot of trust. Right. And how do you know if it actually works? How do you know if it actually works? It's a negative proof, right? When it works, something doesn't happen. (laughs) Right. That's a pretty tough way to market a product, right? Like, aren't you glad nothing happened? And everyone's like, no, I kind of want something to happen, right? Like, I want a feedback mechanism here. So for all of those reasons, we focused pretty much 100% on commercial risk, which is, can we convince people to take this? Can we get convince people to buy it? And crowdfunding is amazing for commercial risk because before you actually have to make any, anything, I have to convince a stranger on the internet to give me $40, dollars $200 for something that they're, that they're going to put in their mouth three months from now. That's like, that's a tough thing to sell. And that's exactly what we needed. Because like, that's the whole crux of it is like, can we build trust? Can we get people to put their credit card down? And crowdfunding is famously a pretty tech bro platform, right? There's some fun exceptions, but like it's largely made its mark in being a technology, you know, launching um, platform. Not a lot of beauty, not a lot of skincare, not a lot of like personal care, sun care. And so we figured if I can get excitement on this platform that we think is actually a poor fit for my customer, that bodes well for my ability to get more enthusiasm down the road, you know, once I am able to, to better align my, my channel, my, my customer base with the, the product. So I found a few manufacturers and, you know, it's like classic no money, low money entrepreneurism. You call your friends, you ask for favors, and we ran a pretty like typical crowdfunding playbook to be able to go live first week of March saying, Hey, like we got this gummy for sun protection. Don't you want some of it? Um, So you used crowdfunding platform, I think Indiegogo, correct? Yeah. So why not use like Kickstarter or maybe a platform that was a little bit more consumer friendly? Well, at the time it was really only those two. Um, So the question was really Indiegogo or or, um, Kickstarter. I mean, you can DIY it too, but the thing we did not have was an audience. Like DIY works it when your superpower is audience or community building. And that was not what we had. 
So the decision for us was really Indiegogo versus Kickstarter. Kickstarter did not allow dietary supplements, but Indiegogo didn't know that. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, you know, they're direct competitors. So like they fight for your business and we're, we're pretty cool and professional and legitimate. Like you can look at my co-founder's background and be like, all right, this isn't some fly by night operation. So Indiegogo thought they were, you know, competing with uh, Kickstarter and so gave us some, some commitments in terms of like how we'd be featured and whatnot. It was a, a real key part of, of getting the buzz early on. Great. That's awesome. So you did this campaign and how much did you guys raise? <laughs> uh, we raised about 125 in the first 30 days, which became more like 175 because they have, you know, a ongoing uh, feature as well. Um, and that was like just enough for it to be like go time for us. Our actual go no go was like 80. Um, a big part of crowdfunding hacking is that you have an artificially low goal so that you can market like we're four times our goal. We, we have two times <laughs> right. our goal on day one. And right. it's kind of silly because like everybody knows this, but it still works. Um, and Indiegogo even like plays into it. Like they know that that's part of it too. So our stated goal was 20 grand. If we had only gotten 20 grand, we would have given all the money back and shut it down and moved on because there was no way to start the company for, for 20 grand. Um, and that's just because the, the run size of gummies is large. It's, it's impossible to make, you know, a thousand bottles of gummies. It's a, it's a, it's a volume game. So we knew if we didn't get to 80, it like, it's, it's a no go. We barely made it. And that was with like a lot of help from, from friends and family. Um, and the thing that was most encouraging to us was again, like we did it under pretty constrained circumstances. Nobody had tasted it. We hadn't even tasted it. <laughs> I just, I distinctly remember the, so it's, it, it started on a Monday and on Saturday, we got Saturday FedEx delivery of like a prototype of the product from a gummy manufacturer and it tasted terrible. <laughs> we were like, oh, no. oh no. So you had like thousands of these gummies that no, tasted no, no. horrible? Well, no. So, so thankfully, um, you, you do bench samples that are literally made by right. hand. Okay. Like it's like a, an icing squeezer. And so you're literally making like 100 gummies, you know, which would be three bottles. That's how you do the R&D process. And then you scale that up to a small run. And the MOQ for a small run is usually like 20,000 bottles or so. And that's for a, a, a manufacturer that's very flexible. So we had, we had desk samples uh, that we had gotten literally like that two days before the campaign started. And they tasted terrible. <laughs> and so here we are, which also means, of course, all the photography in the crowdfunding campaign is faked. We got off-the-shelf gummies and photographed them and then just Photoshopped them to look the same as the color. Uh, because, and actually, that's, that's another thing that happened on Saturday. So our active ingredient, the polypodium, uh, leucotomous extract, the fern extract that does the sun protection, is very dark. It's basically like dirt. It looks like dirt. And we didn't put two and two together that that meant our gummies would be like brown and ugly. So we had prepped <laughs> all of this campaign photography, shooting a light, like omega-3s, you know, are, are a vitamin. And omega-3s are typically an oil and it's a transparent oil. So you can make really beautiful gummies with it. They're those like glowing yellows and oranges. So we had photographed all these orange, beautiful gummies uh, for the whole campaign. And then on Saturday, we get the desk samples. Number one, they taste like crap. Number two, they look like turds. And we're like, what the hell are we going to do? <laughs> so I quickly uh, text our designer and I'm like, you need to make all of those gummies look way more brown. Because <laughs> there can be a difference between what you advertise in the campaign and what people get in their hands. 
but it can't be that big. Right. So we, 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 brown, we brown all the gummies in the campaign and we basically decide like, we're either going to go live with this on Monday and decide that we're going to fix the flavor in the next 60 days before we actually go into manufacturing or we're not. And we decided to go for it and we fixed the flavor. All right. So what did they end up tasting like? How did you get the end result? Awesome. Amazing. Just keep t- trying. And thankfully, the, the manufacturer we were, we're working with, they were an awesome partner. From a chemistry and formulation perspective, the guy that led their R&D was like a true believer. He actually had prior experience with our active ingredient. Um, so it's abbreviated PLE, polypodium leucotomous extract. Um, PLE has been studied for pretty serious like cancer applications, a lot of antioxidants, dense compounds like our, our candidates uh, for more serious healthcare applications. And our head of R&D at the manufacturer was like, oh, I, I was part of a Pfizer trial um, for cancer with polypodium back in the day. In our first call with him, he was like, polypodium is, is God's gift to mankind. So he was already just like so pumped personally that like he got to help create a product like this and with a thing he believed in. That's really what carried us through. Because my first emails to this manufacturer were literally like from Chris Tolls at gmail.com. Hey, I've got an idea. Like, do you guys do custom gummies? Like limited credibility, you know, like pretty clear we're not paying for R&D up front. And thankfully, uh, this guy, bless him, was like, we're going to make an awesome product. So through those 60 days between when we started the campaign and when we actually got the money to go into manufacturing, we just kept iterating. And it was an organic orange oil was the flavoring. And it was really fizzy and bright and sort of effervescent. Obviously, organic orange oil as an ingredient is cool. It's very like pure and natural. And so by the time we actually had to push go, the the gummies were acceptably uglier than what you saw in the crowdfunding campaign. And they tasted amazing. So by the time they got in your hands in June, people were pumped. That's awesome. And so you sold these gummies. Sounds like it was a hit. How did, did you have to raise more money outside of the um, crowdfunding? Did you have to go to investors? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the, the challenge of, you know, physical products is uh, with precious exceptions, you have to pay for it before you get paid for it. Um, and so there was no way that we were going to be able to bootstrap this, just generating enough cash to, to fund inventory internally. The purpose of the crowdfunding campaign was to give us the confidence that it was worth our careers to like commit to this. And then also being able to go to an investor and saying like, Oh, by the way, yeah, I've already got tons of customers and revenue and product in market is a very different negotiating position than like, I got an idea. Right. And and a key goal of ours was like, don't go VC, keep the guy off my back or the gal off my back. Like we want to stay the boss. We want to preserve control. Um, Not that like the alternative is always a bad idea, but it was really important to us um, to stay the people driving the ship. And so by the time, pretty literally, once we got that run, the first run done, we were already planning uh, that we'd have to raise more money. And so we raised 750K in September uh, 2018. And the plan for that was that's you know, 18 months of runway generally that included uh, a whole bunch of inventory. That's awesome. So when you were raising, fundraising is always a fun thing. When you were raising that 750K, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in the fundraising process? Honestly, like, are you saying fundraising's fun um, uh, sarcastically or sincerely? Oh, sarcastically, but definitely. Yeah, I thought so. 
So here's the thing. It was fun for me because it was super successful. Like it, it went well and it was easy and it happened and people liked it. So I actually loved it. Um, not because I'm like a genius, but because it was the right circumstance of like a cool opportunity, well presented to people who are into it and good timing and momentum. And so it actually was not difficult. Um, there was no part of the process that we did that was like novel or interesting. We basically just like made a list of all the, the rich or maybe rich people we knew, sent them an email and was like, hey, we got this crazy ingestible sunscreen thing. Look, we're selling gummies. We got to pay for them before we get paid for them. Like inventory financing is kind of a terrible use for dilutive capital in that it, that's the most expensive money you'll ever find. But it's also kind of a great use because it's just a really easy way to raise money. They're like, why are you raising money? And I'm like, I have customers. I have to make product for them so they can give me their money. And people are like, sounds good. <laughs> you know, there's no like speculation. There's no like heavy R&D. Um, and because that's the reality at the time, like we, we just needed cash because we needed to make more product to keep selling it. Uh, it went really well. It was 21 investors, 20 individuals, and then one early stage fund. Uh, all just like friends of friends of friends of friends. Of the 21... I probably knew four of them beforehand. So it was very much like a network effect thing. Um, and we had the advantage of crossing between a number of different categories. Like as an angel investor, if you're really into like science-based startups, like we could play that up. If you're really into like subscription e-commerce, we could play that up. If you're really into like ETC consumer, you know, CPG, we could play that up. If you're really into like female co-founder, founder, like we could play that up. And so that gave us access to a few different like pools of, of investors um, that not all other businesses can sort of play in simultaneously. So fundraising was really easy. What's one of the biggest challenges that you faced in building a business and how did you oh guys gosh. overcome it? I'd say literally everything else. <laughs> um, it is so hard to have a differentiated product um, that is consistent with your values, or I guess I should say my values, in a really crowded space that a ton of different customers are going after, or different companies are going after, when the product itself, as you point out, is a negative proof, or at least very hard to demonstrate effectiveness, uh, when you've never done it before. <laughs> and so I think the better question is like, which of the pieces was, was the hardest? Um, and for us, Number one was, um, it's kind of like unhelpfully general, but like product market fit. Like really, where do we stick? And eventually we found a great spot in this like premium, clean beauty world. But that was a pretty bumpy path. So when we started the company, we were a sun protection company. And today, like we're a skincare company. Uh, those things are overlapping, but they're very different. So we had a whole bunch of challenges finding who's our customer, how do we reach him or her. Um, we did a pilot with CVS early on that was a total failure because we were a vitamin, right? And like people buy vitamins in CVS. We had to change our name. We actually launched on Indiegogo as Sundots. Um, and Tootsie Roll Industries is a, a privately held candy company. Um, they own the trademark to Dots and threatened us. Uh, so we had to change the name. Like, we had to do a complete rebrand as we pivoted from being a sun company to a skincare company. As we got into market, a few things uh, became clear. Number one, our ability to message 
our sun protection benefits was way more limited than we had hoped. We knew the rules around dietary supplement marketing in that you can't make any health claims. So from the, and um, this is because sunscreen is an over-the-counter drug. If you actually look on the back, it says drug facts. Um, and that means all the claims that you would expect to, and claims is marketing speak for like the things you say that the product will do. When you look at sunscreen and it says like prevent sunburn or prevent skin cancer, you're like, duh, of course it does. It's sunscreen. I can't touch those because I'm not in the monograph for sunscreen. The monograph is like the FDA's document to say like, these are the ingredients you can use to, to make these claims. Because sunscreen is a drug and I'm not a drug, I can't make the claims that sunscreen can. And from the start, we knew that that meant we couldn't talk about preventing sunburn. We couldn't talk definitely about preventing skin cancer. Um, so like, how do you describe what a sun protection product does if you can't say like prevent sunburn? You know, like right. may help reduce the pinkness if you're outside. And people are like, why are you talking so weird? Right. <laughs> we're like, uh, FDA. <laughs> Um, and unfortunately, slash fortunately, depending upon how you look at it, like the FDA is not concerned with what is with what is true or accurate. They're concerned with what is permissible, you know, based on our uh, our, our frameworks of of drug versus supplement marketing. So we had come out of the gate using the phrase sun protection, and very quickly realized like even that itself is too risky because FDA doesn't understand the concept of sun protection in any way, except for in the context of sunscreen. Like that, there is no sun protection that is not a health claim. So our ability to say what the product does was really severely curtailed in a way where like we never got in trouble, but like we, we might have as we got larger. Number two, we learned that sun protection is really a piece of our customers' broader skincare goals. So when we asked them like, hey, like what do you want us to do next? They were like, give us skincare stuff. And so we we're like, all right, can we do that? consistent with our values, which is peer-reviewed human published data, uh, answers yes. All right. That kind of opens up product portfolio. And then number three, relatedly, like if you held a gun to my head and said, ship four great differentiated sun protection products, I would really struggle. There's just like not a lot out there. Um, Supergoop's an amazing company and like they kind of tapped it out. <laughs> like they're doing all the cool stuff that's left to do. There are no ingredients that are going to like really solve the problem better. Uh, there's no like magical format that people haven't thought of. I'd pretty much go on record saying any sun protection product you see entering the market today is 90% derivative. And that doesn't mean it's a bad business idea, but it just didn't excite me or Amelia because we got into it because we really felt like we could, we could help people with, with skin cancer. And so when you're looking at an innovation pipeline and you're like, all right, I just told investors I'm going to ship three more sun protection products. Like they're not there. Like, what do you do? So thankfully we found this adjacency of, you know, sun protection really equals skincare, uh, which is both like marketingly true and biologically true. 90% of avoidable skin aging is caused by the sun. So even if you don't care about your health at all and you only care about looking good when you're old, the sun is like the only thing that you should really be focused on. That's why some of the most like passionate sun protection consumers are women with, with money because they can afford to buy premium sun care products because to them it fits within a beauty or a skincare purchasing goal rather than a, you know, a, a skin health goal. And so we realized, hey, I can adapt 
this existing product, we just had one product at the time, to a skincare message without changing the product at all. Instead, all I'm saying is, instead of this being a sun protection brand, it's now a skincare brand. Right now, we have one product. That product helps you avoid the harmful effects of the sun, a little more abstract. And by the way, the future products that we ship are not sun-focused. They'll be about skin aging, pigmentation, hydration, clear skin and acne, skin and sleep, all gummy, all ingestible, all human peer-reviewed public data. Um, That's our jam. Uh, I think that's like the singular challenge of the whole company is where do we sit in the market and what are we offering that satisfies Chris and Amelia's like mission in life and an unmet customer need. Yeah, exactly. How far, how, how big did your team get in terms of growing your team? So we at Max were, you know, we've sold to Grove now. So mm-hmm. Sundaily Inc. Is, is just me closing up the actual entity. Um, but at our max, we were three full-time W-2s and probably another three full-time equivalent 1099s contractors. So six, something like that. Awesome. And so I'm sure, you know, starting a starting and growing a business, um, obviously involves a lot of professional and personal growth. Um, how have you grown personally as a leader? What would you say is maybe the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a CEO? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) So many things to choose from. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a few top ones. Uh, number one, if I won't die for the problem, it's going to be really hard for me to lead the company. When we started Zen Sun Dots, I was sold out to run a sun protection company because sun protection is a thing that I'd gotten religion around with my friendship with Amelia. I 100% believe in our pivot to skincare in terms of the opportunity for the business. And I'll defend that to the grave. But it also pivoted the business significantly out of my personal passion. And that's hard. Like, I have responsibility to my investors, my employees, to my customers, like all these people that I I, want to make happy and keep happy. And also, I don't want to run a beauty company, right? Like, I don't want to run a skincare company. Uh, Those are very difficult things to figure out when there's like literally no one else, you know, that, that could be doing their job. And I think that taught me to spend more time thinking through what the business could become. I was so fired up about the thing we were doing that I underestimated the likelihood that we could end up in a place very different from where we started. And any other entrepreneur that like hears me say that is like, <laughs> duh, you know, like that's, that's the name of the game. Um, and that's why it's, it's a learning for me is, is I, I underinvested in what if this turns left? What if this turns right? Like what, what am I cool with? What am I not cool with? What am I the best CEO for? What am I not the best CEO for? I want to do a better job um, of that next time and, and really firm up the pieces of what I'm doing that are absolutely essential to my fulfillment. Cause if I'm not fulfilled and engaged and like jamming, like I'm not going to be a great CEO. And so to do right by the business, I think I also need to be like really in the flow. I made the right decision to move the business away from the thing that I cared the most about. And as a first time founder, I didn't know what to do 
when I had what was clearly a valuable business that I didn't want to lead anymore because I didn't want to participate in our particular market. Not because it's like bad or evil, just because it's not my gift. And I think a more experienced CEO would have either seen that risk upfront better and planned ahead for it, probably gotten a replacement CEO, for example, or would have adapted better to that situation to backfill the, the skills that I wasn't going to bring considering that constraint to ensure that the organization didn't suffer. Yeah. I mean, I think it's super interesting. And it's one of the reasons why I do this podcast is I think it's just really important for you know entrepreneurs to be really honest with themselves yeah. and other it's aspiring so hard. entrepreneurs. God, yeah. I mean, yeah, but it's, it's so real. Hard. And people yeah. don't want to talk about it. I mean, especially no. with your kind of like success story with an acquisition. I mean, it's very rare that founders will actually come forward and say, you know what? I actually wasn't really happy. And it's so yeah. important, like you said, to have that passion and to have that drive every day. I think that's really what, you know, totally. that's how entrepreneurs thrive. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we have a cultural standard of the opposite in some yes. ways. We have the like grinded out, white knuckle, like Mm -hmm. at any cost. And that's just lunacy. And -hmm. like, clearly it works for some people in that, like they become rich, but like, man, the like mental, emotional, relational family cost on people trying to live that way is just terrifying. And I mean, maybe I should have been, maybe I should be more upfront with this with a future investor, but like, I will never pay that for any business. Period. Yeah, I think that's a common theme. I think one of the biggest lessons that first-time founders kind of learn is that balance between work and family because with work, it just never ends. I mean, when yep. you're a founder, there is no... Th- you always have something to do. There's yep. always something that needs to be done and there's this constant pressure for needing yep. to get it done now. And I think they learn... Um, you know, My belief is that first-time founders kind of learn, wait, or hopefully they do learn. Some of them don't. And like you're saying, a lot of them sacrifice their health, their um, emotional well-being, their spouse, their relationships, their personal relationships with friends. I mean, a lot of things fall to the wayside because you're simply strapped for time and you have an enormous amount of pressure with, like you said, your customers, your investors. Um, There's just a lot going on. And so a lot of things can fall to the wayside. Um, And it's important to be aware of those things so that you don't make those kind of really you know, painful sacrifices that really don't pay out in the end, you know, because companies come and go. So um, hopefully the relationships that we have in our personal life um, stay. It can happen positively too. Why aren't I awake at night wondering like, how can I do right by my kids? Oh my goodness. What are all the different possibilities for like making them into a generous, kind, other focused human being? Like, why don't I lay awake at night and think like, what am I going to do about like being open-hearted and generous and patient to my wife. Instead, I do that about my Facebook ads. <laughs> and it's like, right. like what, what is it that does that? I don't have a good answer, but man, wouldn't it be great to find a way to be as obsessed with the outcomes of the things that I say matter most to me rather than how to sell gummies on the internet better? Yeah, exactly. So that's, I mean, I'm really glad that we were able to go there. Thanks so much for sharing a lot of that. 
Um, so when you kind of realized, I'm not really passionate about this business, you know, I've got this investor money, I have this team. It's really hard when you're a founder. I mean, you really can't just quit, right? Like it's not no. just a job, it's your or, company, or you, you're tired. Or you can, you right. can, but the costs are enormous. And that's actually really right. important to me in life. Like a lot of times when we say I can't blank, usually what we're saying is I do not accept the consequences of, of blank. I could have quit at any time. It just might've meant a lawsuit right? It definitely would have meant people lose their jobs. It definitely would have meant people lose their money. Um, so that's on me rather than on them. But nonetheless, like it sure does feel like you can't. Exactly. That's, a, that's definitely a great way to put that. Um, so how did you kind of get out? In some ways, thankfully, like it was a pretty gradual process. Like as we made the pivot from um, sun to skincare, I knew that this was a risk and my co-founder and I thankfully were like super on the same page about like what we were most passionate about. But instead of, Oh no, about this thing that I care less about, we decided to focus on, okay, great. We're going to be a skincare company, but we're going to be a different skincare company, right? We're not going to do ads that are like, you're ugly. Don't be ugly. We're not going to do, you know, before after photos because those are so easily gamed we're still going to have like a culture of positive human health impact internally, even if we can't do it externally, right? Like we're going to, we're going to make the claims internally that we can't outside so that everybody on the team knows that like we're providing way more value than, than we're, we're able to market. And, and that works for, for a little while. Um, and so what it instead was, was just like each of those pieces were the periphery. And at the core of what we were doing was skincare and beauty. And so bit by bit, the things that were initially really exciting became less exciting because they were the periphery. And that means you don't spend the core of your time on them. Um, And so for us, the the acquisition interest in Sundaily was initially very opportunistic. Like in in December, we got unsolicited inbound interest from a retailer who was like, Hey, how about we buy you? And that was like a gift in that it made us realize that that might even be a possibility right now. And that's a thing that we then were able to go chase. So because the enthusiasm that we had told ourselves we would have for the periphery was waning at the same time, a way to do right by our investors and other stakeholders presented itself um, in that the company that initially reached out ended up not actually having like a, the ability to purchase the company, but that's what kicked off our own outbound process to say, Hey, like, let's see what's out there. Uh, and that's what resulted in, in Grove. So thankfully it never like came to a, a crux of like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Um, but I think we were avoided having to get to some of those moments by the helpful timing of when a deal was actually able to get done. Uh, And because we were really transparent with our whole team internally around like what was going on, including like my own fulfillment and like our own goals, you know, it's challenging as a CEO to know like how much of your anxiety does your team want to see? Like usually less, (laughs) right? Yeah. Usually not much. (laughs) Right. Um, but also like, like I, I, I'm a wear my heart on my sleeve kind of guy. Like I'm not good at like hiding my feelings. And, 
And how would I want to be treated in their situation if I were having these feelings? So I knew it should be more than zero, but I knew that like it was really important to protect them psychologically from my own beef. Um, the, 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 the so what of it, thankfully, was that they were on the same page enough about the big risks facing the company and what Chris and Amelia cared about compared to what our public image was, that it wasn't like a surprise or a crisis uh, for anybody when we did pursue an acquisition. And we were able to set everybody else up uh, successfully with something else uh, after the fact. Yeah. Did they approach you or how did the whole conversation with Grove Collective start? So once we got this inbound interest, we literally just like started hammering people's inboxes. We had four different categories of potential acquirers. You make a big list, you start cold emailing. We got some help from a broker as well. Uh, Grove specifically was an investor in Sun Daily. His company shares an investor with Grove. So he was like, hey, I know so-and-so who invested in Grove. Maybe I could get you guys connected because he knew what we were trying to do. And so he made the connection to Grove, which got us to the right person. And you know, the upside of like wearing my heart on my sleeve is that I, I'm a very direct communicator. It wasn't like, let's talk about synergies or collaboration. It was like, do you want to buy us? <laughs> so we got to the point pretty quickly. And yeah, we probably reached out to 150 companies. We probably heard back from 30 of them. That was probably seven or eight, you know, sincere possibilities of which we had three offers and grows a winner. So this happened really recently. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. And how Thank has you. the transition been going? It's been awesome. Like the coolest thing about Grove is that they're great people. Like many consumers, I am wary of any brand that claims that it stands for anything besides just making a ton of money. You go into a diligence process or getting to know you process kind of wary, especially with all the stuff around Outdoor Voices on the news and Everlane and basically like so many other ostensibly like pro-social businesses like, you know, The Wing and no no shame on those CEOs, right? Like it's, it's hard. Um, but... The, the thing that's been most encouraging through the process is that Grove really walks the walk and that the people who work there like really care about the mission, treat us well, um, very candid, direct, you know, like a negotiation is like half like, do you want to get married? And so you're like trying to look cool to the other person and half like, how much am I going to pay? <laughs> so there are, there are some pieces that are collaborative and some pieces that are adversarial. Um, and Grove did that all like super professionally and candidly. There was no BS. There was no nonsense. Uh, the product of that is that now that we're inside Grove, uh, it's been awesome. Uh, we're able, we being my my co-founder and I are able to focus on the things that we're going to do better than Grove with Sundaily, which is primarily new product development. We had a product portfolio scoped out that we're now able to execute on better. Um, whereas Grove is taking over things that Grove's going to do better than Sundaily would. You know, they, they run a like world-class fulfillment operation. And despite the fact that I, I love our 3PL, um, it's great to let somebody else take care of things that are less core to what I really care most about in Sundaily. Yeah, totally can relate to that. And congratulations again. Um, just one quick question before we wrap up this awesome interview. Um, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening into the show today? It's kind of lame, but like, know thyself. Like, if you don't know what you want in life, 
man, it's so hard to like go get it. And I won't pretend like I've done that super well, but I have the, the great pleasure of friends and family and, and mentors that helped me realize that this path could be aligned to my like bigger goals and ambitions in life. And I'm glad I've listened to them. But the only reason that stuck, I think the only reason, despite the challenges, is that that's hugely true in, in being fulfilling is because I had at least like a glimmer of what I actually wanted. Um, and especially in the consumer world with like so much froth around DTC, this or that, it's so easy to get caught up in what other people think is a good idea or a compelling opportunity and to really miss the question of like, what's my purpose? And like, what am I here for? Uh, and it, it probably would sound silly to some people to hear that coming out of the mouth of a guy who run like a beauty gummy company, but Sun Daily in many ways, like hugely represents what I believe is my purpose on the world. And that includes like metaphysically, spiritually, like my identity, like what am I here for? Um, because I've had great help over the years answering that question for my for myself, I think I do, you know, sometimes at least like a halfway good job of making a choice based on that. Otherwise you're just flailing, you know, you're just, you're flailing at what somebody else thinks is, is cool. Uh, and that's, that's hard, right? Like there's way, it's, it's way easier to read a whole bunch of TechCrunch articles than it is to answer the question, what am I here for? Absolutely. I mean, the, the journey of self-discovery itself is like, where do you even start? Do you have any recommendations actually as to, you know, if there's a founder out there who's trying to figure out what they want to do next, or, you know, they're in that self-discovery, they know they want to get into the entrepreneurship game. They're not sure what direction to go. What tips would you have for them? They can always email me, <laughs> crystals at gmail.com. Uh, I'll at least like listen and ask probing questions. Cause that's the way I figure most of this stuff out is by talking to other people. Besides that, I don't think that my own process of figuring that out is necessarily instructive. And so I'm hesitant to, to recommend it. But I think it's, it's hard to argue with talking to the people who know you the most and getting them to help you answer the question, right? Like whether it's a, a spouse or a partner or a sibling or a parent or a best friend, like someone that will help you really press on your own assumptions about what can be fulfilling and what you're made for, what your gifts are, you know, what your weaknesses are. It's so rare to have people that'll really shine the mirror. And I think that is absolutely indispensably valuable for anybody that's looking to undertake something like this. That's great advice because a lot of great friends are always there to not just hold up a mirror, but also help us find our blind spots yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. It was really awesome hearing your story. And thanks for sharing all these tidbits of awesome insights. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure. Thanks for making time. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.